This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And when most people think of Butch Cassidy, they think of Paul Newman's characterization in the famous movie, a charming outlaw with an infectious spirit and savvy wit. But the real story of Butch Cassidy is all that and, well, so much more. It's a story of a criminal mastermind, a Western godfather of sorts, who brings organization to the world of unorganized crime. This is the story of how one of the most unlikely fits for criminality became one of the most well-known outlaws of the American West. Butch Cassidy, the last great outlaw of the American West, is born Robert Leroy Parker in Beaver, Utah, on Friday the 13th in April 1866, to a family of Mormon immigrants. He's the first of 13 children born to two of the earliest Mormon settlers, Maximilian and Ann Parker. In 1879, Maximilian buys a homestead in Circle Valley, and 13-year-old Robert Leroy, or Roy as he is called, is thought old enough to help support the family and is sent off to work at a nearby ranch. Here's Tom Hatch, author of The Last Outlaws. Bob Parker was the oldest of 13 kids, and so he became the surrogate father, and he would take care of the kids. Bob was like a big kid himself, and he was throughout his whole life. He was a very gregarious man who made friends wherever he went because of his personality. His mother homeschooled the kids, mostly on the Bible. She would hold services there. He absolutely adored his mother. Here's Michael Rudder, author of Wild Bunch of Women. His mother was very devout. The family was strict. There was a confirmed right and wrong. There were fundamental Christian values in the family. Yale Force winds and droughts make life on the Parker homestead a struggle. Maximilian decides to homestead additional acreage in the valley, but rights to the new property are contested by another settler. By Mormon custom, the dispute is mediated by the local church bishop. The bishop awards the land to the other settler, who is thought more faithful to the church. Maximilian is furious. Young Roy is furious also. He feels the Mormon religion has been used to cheat his family out of their land. Roy sets out to support his family by hiring out again this time at Jim Marshall's ranch. During Roy's second season at Marshall's ranch, he meets a man who would forever alter the direction of his life, small-time cattle rustler Mike Cassidy. Here's Utah historian Ken Verdoya. Mike Cassidy. He's a well-known horseman, and he's great with a revolver and excellent shot and marksman. And Cassidy takes a liking to little Bobby Parker, teaches him how to really ride a horse, teaches him how to handle a revolver, how to become a good marksman. And more importantly, Mike Cassidy shows him how to cut corners. There's big cattle operations, and they'll never miss it if one or two or 10 of the herd gets cut away and goes to another place. And Robert Parker watched Mike Cassidy acquire cattle and horses in that fashion. 
In the summer of 1884, Roy Parker is 18 years old and full grown. Stands five foot nine and weighs 165 pounds. He's described as friendly, good-natured, loyal, and generous. He also has an infectious grin and is a natural leader. A ranch cowboy says Roy can ride around a tree at full speed and put every bullet from his revolver into a three-inch circle. Mike Cassidy has taught the kid well. His wrestling soon becomes known to the local authorities, though, and he leaves for the gold-mining boomtown of Telluride, Colorado. Some claim the town got its name from a quick pronunciation of Telluride. For a young man seeking adventure, Roy has come to the right place. Rugged frontiersmen pack Telluride's famed saloons, gambling halls, and houses of ill repute. Here's historians of the Old West, Paul Hutton and Tom Hatch. Robert Parker goes to a world that couldn't be more different. This is the wild boomtown world of the mining camp. So a lot of gambling, a lot of drinking, a lot of prostitution, a lot of young men, heavily armed and fueled by alcohol. He went in there with a Mormon mind, and within a week or two, I'm sure he'd been in every saloon there, and he learned how to drink with the best of them, and he gambled with the best of them, and he didn't feel comfortable in Mormon country, but he felt comfortable in Telluride. Roy lands a grueling job running a pack train of mules, hauling gold and silver ore from the mines to the mills. He soon wearies of the drudgery. Going in the mines each and every day, Robert Parker looks at that as a sucker's bet. You're coming out bone weary, you could die down there, and what have you earned at the end of the day? But on the corner is the San Miguel Bank. Roy, with two of his new friends, a lapsed Mormon named Matt Warner, and Warner's brother-in-law, Tom McCarty, pulls his first major criminal job, the robbery of the San Miguel Valley Bank of Telluride on June 24th, 1889. Now, most attempts at robbing banks in the Old West fail miserably because of poor planning or no planning at all. Roy is undeterred by the odds against him, and for good reason. From the very beginning, he had a methodology. He wasn't just one of these wild riders like the movies make so famous. He was very methodical, he was very careful, he was very intelligent. Parker knew it's not just about where the money is, but knowing when it will be at its peak. When will the cash arrive? Who handles the cash? How many people are in the building at the time when the cash is at its peak? And more importantly than that, how will I make my escape? And when we come back, more on the life of Butch Cassidy, his story, here on Our American Stories. Get more at OurAmericanStories.org and sign up for our weekly newsletter.
American stories, and we continue with the story of Butch Cassidy. Roy Parker's accomplice, Tom McCarty, is an old hand at bank robbery, and he impresses upon Roy the importance of not only planning each step of the robbery, but also each step of the getaway. Several weeks before robbery, Roy will train and harden horses to be used in the getaway. Blooded animals are selected, grain-fed, and exercised rigorously. When the first relay is reached, Roy switches to thoroughbreds, able to maintain a swift pace over a long distance. If necessary, a second and a third relay of horses is used. This masterstroke will become Roy Parker's signature technique. The robbery of the bank at Telluride goes exactly as planned, and Roy and the others gallop out of town. Here's Ken Verdoya and True West Magazine contributor Tom Ross. And this is the genius of Robert Parker. He had planned the escape even better than he had planned the holdup. This is the first of his great escapades where they wind up with big money. I mean, you walk away from a bank with $20,000, I mean, you're looking at what a cowboy might take him five or 10 years to make if he saved every penny. This is a serious crime. It's one thing to take a few cows or take a couple horses, but this is big time robbery. There's no going back. There's no going back. Roy Parker knows his deed will break the heart of his pious mother and decides to deflect shame from his family. He drops a family name and begins using the surname Cassidy in honor of his mentor. He will later also add the nickname Butch and become known to history as Butch Cassidy. The steep canyons and unforgiving terrain that make up the 1,500-mile-long stretch of wilderness that runs from New Mexico to Montana is known as the Outlaw Trail. The series of hideouts on the trail are notorious, with the names Robber's Roost, Brown's Hole, and Hole in the Wall. One of the benefits of being a Western outlaw is space. The American West is vast. It's cut by canyons, mountain ranges, river trails. A lot of places, there's only one way in. And so it's easy to guard. It's easy to see who's coming. And so these become natural fortifications for the outlaw bands to hide in. And if you're a lawman, and especially if you're just a civilian posse, you're not going in there. It's suicide. In 1890, Butch moves up the outlaw trail to the Wyoming hideout, hole in the wall. In April 1892, a couple of lawmen arrest Butch for being in possession of three stolen horses. Now, Butch claims he purchased the horses fair and square, and that seems to have been the case. However, the man he had purchased them from had stolen the horses. In July 1894, he is sentenced to two years in the Wyoming State Penitentiary. After serving 18 months, Butch applies for a pardon. William Richards, the governor of Wyoming, asks Cassidy, will you give me your word 
met your quick rustling. Butcher replies, can't do that, Governor, because if I gave you my word, I'd only have to break it. I'm in too deep now to quit the game, but I'll promise you one thing. If you give me a pardon, I'll keep out of Wyoming. Well, Cassidy's frankness wins over Governor Richards. The governor signs the pardon, and in January 1896, Butch Cassidy walks out of the penitentiary a free man. If Butch Cassidy was a minor outlaw before he went to prison, upon his release, he's determined to make a name for himself. Butch begins to gather together a group of outlaws who will become known as the Wild Bunch. Here's Cassidy biographer, W.C. Jameson. Cassidy referred to the group not as the Wild Bunch, but as the Train Robbers Syndicate. Now, this suggested a level of, of organization and perhaps a, a certain level of sophistication among this outlaw that cuts above the average outlaw of the day. Among this band of strong personalities, Butch is the clear leader. There was no job that he couldn't do. I think the others in the gang recognized his confidence, recognized his leadership, and thought that with this guy, we're gonna be able to do some cool things. Butch handpicks each member of the gang and expects the best from those who ride with him. The core members include William Elsie Lay, Harvey Kit Curry Logan, Ben the Tall Texan Kilpatrick, Will News Carver, and lastly, the 21-year-old introvert, Harry Longabaugh, the man known to history as the Sundance Kid. Sundance was born Harry Longabaugh, about 30 miles north of Philadelphia, and he grew up basically on the canals. He would work probably 20 hours a day sometimes, and he would walk 25 miles each day. But Harry had dreams. He paid one whole dollar for a library card, which was quite a bit of money at that time to a poor boy. And he read these pulp novels about Jesse James and Buffalo Bill. This is where dreams of the West came into his head. I think it's difficult to understand today the lure of adventure that existed in the late 19th century, especially for a young boy like Harry growing up in Pennsylvania. The West offered everything that the society of the East seemed to work against. And a lot of young men went West in search of adventure. The 20-year-old Longbaugh earns his nickname, the Sundance Kid, after having served a year in the Sundance Wyoming jail for horse theft. In 1892, Sundance Kid and two accomplices rob a great northern railroad train at Malta, Montana. The accomplices are eventually captured, tried, and convicted. But the Sundance Kid makes good his escape and is introduced to Butch Cassidy on the outlaw trail. Butch saw in Sundance someone he could trust, number one. And number two, someone he could bounce his ideas off of, and they would go nowhere else. Butch Cassidy's first robbery following his release from the Wyoming State Penitentiary occurs in August 1896 at Mount Pelier, Idaho. As usual, Butch's caper is conducted with impeccable execution 
a breathtaking escape and not a single dead body. They get away with more than $7,000, something like a quarter million in today's money. Butch understood one simple premise. He didn't have to kill people. Some would go into a robbery and kill just to silence voices. Butch said, if my getaway is clean enough, I don't have to silence voices. Butch Cassidy's next heist is a daring daylight robbery at Castle Gate, Utah in April 1897. The Denver and Rio Grande train arrives at Castle Gate with the Pleasant Valley Coal Company's entire payroll aboard. Sign for me here. The crowd of miners barely notice two horsemen riding up to the general store. The horsemen are Butch Cassidy and L.Z. Lay. When the paymaster brings the payroll from the train, Butch jumps in his path. Beg your pardon, mister. Puts a gun in his ribs and takes the satchel. Before the astonished crowd can react, Butch is back in the saddle and galloping out of town. This is not just some drunken punk's pulling shenanigans. This is the kind of stuff that puts him on the map. We've been robbed! A station agent tries to telegraph Price, Utah, the direction the outlaws seem to be headed. But Cassidy and Lay have cut the wires. Cassidy and Lay then escape by a circuitous route with fresh relays of horses and eventually reach Brown's Hole, some $8,000 richer, more than a quarter of a million today. And when we come back, more on the life of Butch Cassidy. And to learn and hear all that we do, go to ouramericannetwork.org and subscribe to our newsletter. Give us your email address and you'll get the five best stories that we have each week directly into your inbox. This is Lee Habib. Again, this is Our American Stories. More on the life of Butch Cassidy after these commercial messages. This is Our American Stories, and we last left off with Butch and his boys returning to their hideout on the infamous Outlaw Trail. Let's return to the story and find out more about this Old West den of thieves. Along the Outlaw Trail, you have people that become the backbone of the Wild Bunch. They're the ones who provide the horses. They're the ones that offer a meal when they're on the run. These are the people that many times are able to keep their farms or their ranches because of a few $20 gold pieces that are dropped behind by Butch and Sundance as they make their way. By 1898, news of the charismatic Cassidy and his wild bunch begin to make headlines from San Francisco to New York. But along with their success, as America approaches the 20th century, the once wild and free West is being transformed. 
40 years of unprecedented expansion of fast transportation and communication systems have connected the settled and civilized East with the once wild and woolly American West. Powerful railroad executives, mining barons, and cattle kings are tired of being robbed by Western outlaws and turn to a powerful ally to impose their own brand of law and order, the Pinkerton National Detective Agency. Here's historians of the American West, Marshall Trimble and Andrew Nelson. They were a private detective agency, therefore they weren't bound by the laws of regular lawmen. Bribery, deceit, nothing is off the table for the Pinkertons. And they are just as, if not more sophisticated than Butch Cassidy. They also have assembled a crew of diverse talents. Founded 50 years earlier by Scottish immigrant Alan Pinkerton, the agency is America's first private detective outfit for hire. Pinkerton's logo, a simple, unblinking eye underlined by the words, we never sleep, adds a new term to the American lexicon, private eye. Alan Pinkerton pioneers the use of undercover agents and webs of informants. During the Civil War, he's even recruited by Abraham Lincoln to run spy operations for the Union Army. The Pinkertons have over 2,000 full-time agents and 30,000 paid informants and part-time regulars. Their standing force is larger than the standing force of the United States Army at its time. And they get called out to bring justice to the American West. The Pinkertons embodied the modern age. They brought everything together, memoranda, files, regional offices, photography, everything. Butchin's Wild Bunch are now wanted dead or alive. But as usual, Butch has planned ahead, keeping an attorney on retainer to protect him and his men. Douglas Preston is Butch Cassidy's lawyer. Whenever any of the Wild Bunch gets in trouble, it is Preston who defends them, usually with success. Preston later becomes a state legislator and then the Attorney General of Wyoming. Preston says that once upon a time, during a saloon brawl, Cassidy saved his life. And in gratitude, he promised to defend Butch whenever the need should arise. Now, after the Civil War, outlaws begin targeting trains, starting with the Reno brothers in 1866 and followed by others such as Jesse James and Sam Bass. They make quick work of railroad express cars packed with money and lumbering through remote locations far from local posses. Most train robberies were successful. Everybody knew that. Banks got a little more difficult. The trains were fairly easy to rob because they hadn't put armed messengers on them. They hadn't taken any precautions whatsoever with security. Butch and his train robber syndicate pulled the first train robbery in the desolate countryside of Wilcox, Wyoming in June 1899. The flyer is coming down the tracks. They're about ready to cross a wood trestle bridge. 
and we see a couple guys with a lantern shaking it back and forth to stop the train. Usually it meant a washed out track or damaged track ahead and the train should stop. Any engineer in his right mind goes, we gotta lock up the brakes. The train stops before the trestle. The people on the train are nervous. We don't stop trains in the middle of the desert, but it just happened. The engineers thought that the bridge might have been washed out. Little did he know that these were robbers up on the tracks. They pull apart passenger cars, separate them from the engine and the car which carries the safe. Butch and the boys then surround the express car and shout to the messenger inside to open the door. Ernest Woodcock replies, come in and get me. Is it a dud? Butch answers by lobbing a stick of dynamite under the car. Got a dud. The blast blows out one side of the car. Woodcock has thrown the entire length of the car and knocked groggy. Harvey Logan jumps into the car and puts a revolver to Woodcock's head. Butch yells at Logan, let him alone. A man with his nerve deserves not to be shot. The gang then blows the safe apart with still more dynamite. Too much, in fact. Bonds and money are blown everywhere, and the outlaws have to scurry about to gather together some $30,000 in loot. All right, boys. We gotta go. That's around one million in today's money. It's the most spectacular robbery the West has ever seen. A few hours later, a special train is dispatched to the scene from Cheyenne, 120 miles away. The train carries railroad detectives, Pinkerton detectives, and a posse with horses. The lawmen rendezvous at Wilcox and then set out upon the trail of the Wild Bunch. Here's historian David Eisenbach. If they could nail Butch Cassidy, no matter how much money they and resources they devoted to this, the fame of the agency would become so great that it would pay off in the long run with other jobs that they would get. And they would literally go to the ends of the earth to do it. The Pinkertons put two of their best operatives, Charlie Seringo and W.O. Sales, on the assignment. These pros don't follow hoofprints in the dirt. Instead, they begin methodically tracking serial numbers on the banknotes stolen at Wilcox. Soon, the stolen money begins to surface in towns across the region. Unintentionally, the Wild Bunch members are illuminating their own trail. Because of the dynamite blowing it up, a whole bunch of the bills had cuts on the bottom. And so they knew that if they got one of the bills that had a cut in a certain way, it was from this robbery. All of this stuff worked against these antiquated horse-powered cowboys who were trying to steal this money. You know, they're up against serial numbers. No contest. One by one, the hideouts for the Wild Bunch had been penetrated. Moreover, by 1900, several members of the Wild Bunch had been killed or captured. Thanks to a tip, Butch nearly escapes capture by a Pinkerton detective and decide it's time to call it quits. 
it's like a noose getting tighter and tighter. And Butch is smart enough to understand this. He's smart enough to see that now all of the Pinkerton's resources are focused on the Wild Bunch and they're never going to give up. They won't stop. And when we come back, the final segment in this remarkable story, Butch Cassidy's story, here on Our American Stories. Continue with our American stories with the Pinkerton National Detective Agency dedicating all of its resources towards the capture of outlaw Butch Cassidy. Butch is forced to get even more creative. Let's return to the story. Working with his lawyer, Douglas Preston, Butch agrees to meet with Union Pacific representatives to negotiate a truce. The railroad will drop charges against him in exchange for him working as a railroad express card. To avoid any chance of treachery, Butch asks that Preston bring the railroad officials to the remote Lost Soldier Stage Station at the base of Green Mountain in Wyoming. The railroad contingent, who are ready to make a deal, well, that contingent is delayed en route by a storm, and when the hour of the rendezvous comes and goes without Preston, And without the Union Pacific representatives showing up, Butch is left alone and thinking he's been stood up, or worse, set up. In what would have been a historic meeting, Butch becomes impatient and leaves behind an angry note. Damn you, Preston. You double-crossed me. I waited all day, but you didn't show up. Tell the UP to go to hell, and you can go with them. As a result of what Butch believes to be the Union Pacific's treachery, he decides to strike against the railroad as soon as possible. On a warm evening in August 1900, the boys stop the Union Pacific at Tipton, Wyoming. Butch finds that the messenger inside the express car is none other than the clerk from the previous Wilcox robbery, Ernest Woodcock. Again, the brave messenger refuses to open the door. Seeing the Wild Bunch's dynamite, though, the conductor convinces Woodcock to comply this time. The outlaws then dynamite the safe and take an estimated 55000 Butch now thinks he should leave the once wide-open American West and try his luck in South America. Here's historian Gerald Copen. Butch wants to go to a place that's more like the Western United States was, say, 20 years before, where you don't have the Pinkertons to worry about and where law enforcement isn't quite as effective. Before he leaves, Butch, Sundance, and three of the core members of the Wild Bunch rendezvous 
in the roaring cattle boom town of Fort Worth, Texas, to live it up in Hell's Half Acre, the red light district. Decked out like the businessmen they are robbing, the five men commemorate their adventure by posing for a group photograph. Ironically, for the master planner, it will be this relatively new technological innovation that will result in the biggest blunder of an otherwise brilliant criminal career. The photographer put this photograph in his window as advertisement for his skill. Unfortunately, a local lawman goes by, recognizes one of the boys in the photo, and soon that photo is circulated throughout the Pinkerton Detective Agency and throughout the West. They made flyers with pictures of Butch Cassidy, the Sundance Kid, all the Wild Bunch. They plastered those pictures up everywhere, and they had them in the hands of all their operatives. Now, indeed, you couldn't escape the eye that never slept, because it really had you. Butch splits up the gang, and by February 1901, Cassidy, Sundance, and his mysterious girlfriend, the absolute knockout at a place. Spend several weeks living the high life in the modern metropolis of New York City. From there, they leave on a steamship for Argentina. It seemed like they had a chance to start over, to reinvent themselves. The old days are over. Butch and Sundance get out just in time. Two years after Butch and Sundance leave for Argentina, Edwin Porter's The Great Train Robbery, one of the first motion pictures, is captivating New York audiences in 1903. By 1903, the story of the Wild West, the story of Butch and Sundance, has already become fodder for mass entertainment. So famous is the Wild Bunch that Buffalo Bill Cody in his Wild West show, which is playing not only all across America, but to the crown heads of Europe, features one of their train robberies. I mean, I think to the American public, Butch and Sundance are gone. It's over. That's why they're making movies. It's a show. It's a show now. In the winter of 1903, Pinkerton informants in Pennsylvania intercept a letter Sundance sends to his family. In South America, Butch Cassidy may have forgotten about the Pinkertons, but the Pinkertons certainly had not forgotten about Butch Cassidy. You'll have to enter this, please, sir. Yes, sir. They were still employing every tool and every method at their disposal to bring him to justice. That included intercepting mail. I need to send a telegram to Argentina. Butch Cassidy has been cited. On the run from Argentine authorities in a need of cash, Butch and Sundance return to what they know best. Along with Etta Place, they take 10,000 from the National Bank in Central Argentina and 20,000 from a bank in Rio Gallegos. In 1907, Etta Place returns to the United States for medical treatment and Butch and Sundance rob a mule train with a payroll for the Alpoca mine in Southern Bolivia. Within hours of the heist, the telegraph wires begin humming. Even in the wilds of South America, 
the civilizing forces of westward expansion have caught up with Butch and Sundance. Every town in the area is supplied with descriptions of what they call banditos yaki. Butch makes the mistake of taking not only the gold, but also a big silver-gray mule. Sometime later, Butch and Sundance ride into the village of San Vicente, where a hotel owner recognizes the mule and grows suspicious. While his wife prepares a meal for Butch and Sundance, he rides to alert a nearby troop of Bolivian cavalry. He led three people down to this home. One of the soldiers went onto the patio, drew his weapon. Butch saw his silhouette through the window and pulled out his six gun and shot the guy dead. First person, the only person that Butch ever killed. Meanwhile, the word goes out and other residents of the town, heavily armed, now come to surround the house. They're surrounded. They're not going anywhere. There's no way they're getting out of there. The shooting becomes general. Butch and Sundance had put their Winchesters and extra ammunition across the patio. And now Sundance makes a dash for them. He miraculously gets to the rifles and ammo unscathed. But on his return dash, is hit by several rounds and drops to the ground. Butch runs out and drags him back to cover. The two continue fighting, but Sundance is fading fast and dies. Butch has one round left. With that last bullet, he shoots himself. Butch Cassidy, the one-time Mormon boy named Robert Leroy Parker, is dead at 42 years old. The two are laid to rest in unmarked Bolivian graves. But there are some who believe these famous outlaws had not yet met their end. Almost immediately, stories began that they hadn't been killed in Bolivia. We don't want the outlaws to die. We certainly don't want them to die the way Butch and Sundance died. As wild as they were, as bad as they were, still represented something that Americans embrace, that wild freedom. And when they're gone, the Wild West is gone. Great job, as always, to Greg Hengler on all these long pieces there. They're available always on our website. I'll get to that in a bit. And thanks, as always, to Roger McGrath, who does our Western pieces. Uh, Greg had studied with him in college out on the West Coast. And Roger McGrath is author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes. And we just love the sound of his voice. And we love that he does the work he does for us and for all of you listening. And by the way, if you want to hear more from us and hear more of our stories, you can subscribe to our newsletter. Go to ouramericannetwork.org, give us your email address, and we'll give you our five best stories of the week, every week. Again, that's ouramericannetwork.org. Give us your email address, and the five best stories of the week will find their way into your inbox. And folks, let friends and family know about this show. We're trying to tell the stories that no one else is telling, good stories about America's past, its present, and of course, its future. 
Go to Our American Network again and sign up for our newsletter and share what we do with the folks around you and the folks close to you. Butch Cassidy's life story here on Our American Stories. And again, go to Our American Network and hear all that we do. Our This Day in Histories, my goodness, they're up there for all to see. Our On Leadership Stories, they're there. Everything's there up on OurAmericanNetwork.org. Our American Stories, and the next story you're about to hear is a good one. And before we get to it, if you enjoy what you're listening to and want to sign up for our newsletter, and in the newsletter we'll send you our five best stories every week, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org, share your email address with us, and we'll get you that newsletter. And share the link with friends if you like what you hear. In this time of never-ending bickering and loudness and anger, Our show is a rebuttal to all of that. And now it's time for the take of an obscure TV signal hacking incident that took place in the 1980s that's had the city of Chicago on edge ever since. Here's Jesse with the details. Even in a medium that is no stranger to bizarre moments, these were truly bizarre. First hit WGN, its signal was jammed during the news in the middle of the Bears highlights. The incidents are now under investigation by the FCC and the FBI. Last night, someone broke into regular programming on Channel 9 and on Chicago's public broadcasting station. The Max Headroom Signal Intrusion was a television signal hijacking that happened the night of November 22, 1987 on two different television stations in Chicago within three hours of each other. The first incident took place for 25 seconds during the sportscast on the 9 p.m. news on WGN-TV Channel 9. During highlights from the Chicago Bears' 30-10 home victory over Detroit, the pirate signal took over. McMahon and McKinnon, 14-0 Bears, then the defense, which hadn't put up a sack in 12 quarters, finally did. The screen went black for nine seconds, then returned with a person wearing a Max Headroom mask and sunglasses. As a panel of corrugated metal rotated behind this character's gyrating head, the sound is nothing but static. The hijack was stopped after engineers at WGN switched the frequency of their studio link to the John Hancock Center transmitter. The news anchors, realizing that they're back on the air, try to explain to their audience what's happened. Well, if you're wondering what's happened, (laughs) so am I. Actually, the computer that we have running our news from time to time took off and went wild. So what we're going to do is start over from the top of the Bears and tell you once again about the 30-10 to victory they had over Detroit today out of Soldier Field. I should briefly mention what Max Headroom was. While there was no affiliation between this guy who hacked the TV broadcast in Chicago, he was wearing the Max Headroom mask. You see, Max Headroom was a 1980s fictional AI character known for his wit and electronic stuttering voice that was dreamt up by an undoubtedly coked-out television executive with a profound sense of talking heads that would dominate mainstream media for decades. 
And by Coke, I mean Coca-Cola, as Max Hedrum was at one time the spokesperson for the brand itself. This is This is what passed as cutting-edge entertainment back in the 80s before the internet, kids. Max Hedrum. So this hacker, this pirate, this communications vandal, broke into WGN-TV's signal in Chicago the night of November 22nd, 1987, during the 9 p.m. news, and broadcast video of himself wearing the Max Headroom mask, with nothing but static for audio, without explanation. But the fun doesn't stop there. Later that same night, around 11.15 Central Time, during a broadcast of the Doctor Who serial horror of Fang Rock, PBS member station WTTW's signal was hijacked by the same person who had broadcast the WGN hijack just hours before, this time with distorted and crackling audio. The sound is nearly impossible to make out, mostly random nonsense. But you can hear the man say, quote, I've just made a masterpiece for all the greatest world newspaper nerds, unquote. Whatever that means. Then the character exposes his rear end as a woman off-camera spanks him with a fly swatter. Clearly, we are dealing with a genius here. WTTW, which maintained its transmitter atop the Sears Tower, found that its engineers were unable to stop the hijacker due to the fact that there were no engineers on duty at the time. Technicians monitoring the transmission from WTTW headquarters attempted to take corrective measures, but couldn't. The Max Hedrum incident made national headlines and was reported on the CBS Evening News the following day. Well, the FCC says last night's piracy was the first of its kind in Chicago. Another one is on tonight, this one for the video pirates who managed to scramble Chicago airwaves. The pirates interrupted WGN and WTTW programming with a show of their own. Video pirate who raided two television broadcasts last night first hit WGN. Its signal was jammed during the news in the middle of the Bears highlights. The pirate mimicked the Max Headroom character that you see on TV. Chicago television station, someone using sophisticated equipment managed to briefly and illegally override broadcast signals on WGN-TV and WTTW. Even in a medium that is no stranger to bizarre moments, these were truly bizarre. Jury Deliberations Edition tonight is trying to find out who's responsible for two acts of video piracy. Someone who really knows the business and uh, microwave in general. Last night, someone broke into regular programming here on Channel 9 and on Chicago's public broadcasting station. The FCC was upset. Take some pretty significant... Uh, equipment, technical equipment, and some knowledge of uh, broadcast uh, frequencies, uh, microwave frequencies, and a lot of uh, a lot of power. Law enforcement was furious. It is very serious, and uh, we'd like to uh, inform anybody who's involved in this type of thing that it is serious and that we will take every step uh, that uh, we can to uh, find out who is doing it. And once we have uh, determined that, we will make sure that uh, the full extent of the law is uh, carried out. Viewers were ready to riot. I got so upset that I wanted to bust a TV set. I really did. I just thought it would be just a slight mess up, but that in the middle of the tape, it's going to have to tape over it. Uh, somebody wants to get attention, what do they do? They go break into a uh, uh, television broadcast just to get attention, like throwing a brick through your window, so to speak. Okay. It's, not too it's not too bright, really. But this little guy was, well, he was rather amused. Very, very funny. 
And that perhaps is the most valid opinion on the Max Headroom signal intrusion that cold night of November 22nd, 1987 in Chicago. Sure, it was illegal. Sure, it probably cost time and money to investigate. And sure, it was reckless and highly immature. And whoever was responsible has yet to be brought to justice over such a blatant and crass disregard for our system of law and order. But it was kind of funny. This is Our American Stories. I'm Jesse Edwards. And this is Our American Stories. And our next story is a truly cataclysmic one out of one of the most colorful states in the Union, and that's Texas. Here's one of our Hillsdale interns, Monty Montgomery, and Dr. Alan Lee Hamilton, professor of U.S. and Texas history at St. Philip's College, with the story of Crush, Texas. Missouri-Kansas Texas Railroad, better known as the Katy for short, hasn't seen any of its rolling stock in action since 1989 after economic downturn caused business to dry up for the company. But in 1896, the Katy faced a very similar issue, and passenger agent William George Crush had a cataclysmic solution that would lead the king of ragtime, Scott Joplin, to compose the piece you just heard. Up in 1896. We were in the middle of the Depression and people were depressed. There wasn't much to do back then uh, in the way of politics was your major participation sport. Anyway, people were looking for something to do and the KT Railroad's uh, uh, numbers had dropped considerably. And so, from uh, a business, he came up with this idea of staging a train wreck. A train wreck. George Crush wanted to stage a train collision to get people to ride a railroad? It seems crazy. But William George Crush knew he could turn the morbid curiosity of the public into a spectacle that would draw them out in droves to its location. All on Katy trains, of course, for a mere $2 round trip from anywhere in the state. Amazingly, the Katy Railroad approved the idea, and Crush was put in charge of planning the event 15 miles north of Waco, Texas, in a natural valley that would fittingly be named after its own orchestrator, William George Crush himself. The name Crush itself apparently was uh, something the workmen who were building the site thought up. Uh, it was George Crush's idea, and somebody put up a wooden plaque that said, Welcome to Crush, Texas. They chose the site north of Waco because it was in a natural valley and they could get spectators on both sides of the valley. They ran the track down the middle of it, the length of it, 
and they took these two old uh, 35 ton locomotives and uh, dressed them up. Uh, one of them was uh, number 999 and the other one was uh, 1001 and they painted them. Uh, one of them was green, the other was uh, bright red and they toured the state. With the crash crush starting to take shape, William George Crush decided that the event had to be much more than just two trains slamming into one another. It needed to be a full-blown festival. And Crush, Texas had to be a full-blown city to hold that festival. So Crush had two water walls drilled on location, contracted the Ringling Brothers for a tent under which Katie Railroad's head chef would cook in a fully functioning restaurant, a grandstand for spectators, three speaker stands for politicians to come out, two telegraph offices, a new train depot welcoming guests to crush with a massive sign, events from the St. Louis World's Fair, which would include lemonade stands, carnival games, medicine shows, cigar vendors, and a wooden jail staffed with actual police officers to keep order in the boomtown. Crush, Texas was ready to be opened, and on September 15, 1896, it was. And soon enough, the town was flooded with eager onlookers, far more than anybody, including Crush, had expected. There's no way to get an exact number, but uh, the, the figures uh, keep showing up 40,000. Most of them came on the uh, Katy Railroad. As a matter of fact, there were 33 trains set aside to bring people in and the event was supposed to take place at 2 o'clock but it actually didn't take place until 5.30 because the trains were continuing to arrive and the crowd kept growing. Some of the uh, cars were so full that uh, reporters said that people were riding on top of the cars to get there. Those 40,000 spectators made Crush, for a brief amount of time, the second largest city in the state of Texas. The stage was set for the collision, and the trains were rolled to the opposite sides of the track, four miles apart. Although Crush had made sure to rope the area off 200 yards from the track, the massive throngs of sightseers pushed forward, forcing the event to be delayed another hour. Photographers were allowed to be the closest to the track, though, 100 yards away. Crush had made sure to also put explosives along the rails so when the trains rumbled down the track, their arrival would be even more memorable. With everything in order, Crush, riding a borrowed white horse, singled the start of the event. What followed next is best described by a reporter in the Dallas Daily News. They rolled down at a frightful rate of speed to within a quarter mile of each other. Near and nearer, as they approached the fatal meeting place, the rumbling increased, the roaring grew louder. Now they were within ten feet of each other. The bright red and green paint on the engines and the gaudy advertisements on the cars shone clear and distinct in the glaring sun. A crash, the sound of timbers rent and torn, and then a shower of splinters. There was just a swift instance of silence, and then... As if controlled by a single impulse, both boilers exploded simultaneously, and the air was filled with flying missiles of iron and steel, varying in size from postage stamps to half of a driving wheel. All that remained of the two engines and twelve cars was a smoking mass of fractured metal and kindling wood, except one car in the rear of each train, which had been left untouched. 
the engines have been completely telescoped. And contrary to experience in such cases, instead of rising in the air from the force of the blow, were just flattened out. There was nothing about the cars big enough to save except pieces of wood, which were eagerly seized upon and carried home as souvenirs. The event had not gone as planned, though. Crush had been assured by the engineers that the trains, which had crashed at a combined speed of 90 miles per hour, would not have their boilers explode. However, they did, killing two to three people and injuring 12, including a photographer who lost an eye. His name was Dean, and he did lose his eye uh, in the event. But he had a sense of humor about it. He said that... uh... After he lost the sight of one eye, he put an ad in the newspaper saying, having, having gotten all the loose screws and other hardware out of my head, I'm now ready for the photographic business again. After the crowd realized the full extent of the event and that people had been killed, a lynch mob formed to find Crush. But he had disappeared, along with the white horse he had ridden in on. Uh, Crush was fired that afternoon. But then he was rehired the next day, and he worked for the Katy for the next 37 years until he retired. The Katy quickly paid off the victims' families as well, settling all their lawsuits that resulted from the carnage at Crush. Uh, naturally, these people wanted to sue the railroad, and the railroad immediately offered to pay them off with cash and lifetime passes on the railroad. Dean himself, he lost an eye. He got $10,000 and a lifetime pass. Uh, one young man who was killed in the accident, his family received a considerable sum of money. They never said how much, but each member in the family got a lifetime pass. That was a big deal back then. They were probably saying, well, we really like little Johnny, but you know, a lifetime pass on the railroad is something pretty cool. It was a spectacle. It was a lot of fun. It was in all the newspapers. And then it was pretty quickly forgotten. Uh, the fact that people were killed, well, uh, as, I said, as I said, it was different back then, uh, liability and such. Uh, you basically took your own risk for being there. And unless you were badly injured, you didn't worry about it. A lot of people were traumatized by it, but that was considered uh, the day and age. And even though the crash at Crush was marred by tragedy, George Crush had exceeded his own expectations by a landslide having only expected 20,000 people to attend the event. In doing so, Crush generated much-needed publicity for the Katy Railroad that got people riding again. Crush had, for all intents and purposes, accomplished what he had set out to do. And thanks for that, Monty and Dr. Hamilton. The story of Crush, Texas. And by the way, if you have stories like this, send them to us, these these, I, this is classic Americana, a story like this, and it makes, well, it makes our country really unique, these kind of stories. And by the way, sign up for our newsletter to do so, and our five best stories of the week sent to you each week by our staff and picked by our staff and you. Go to ouramericannetwork.org, share our email address, and again, you'll get our newsletter every week on the dime, our five best stories. And tell friends about our show as well. We're growing fast and need your help to grow even faster. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And the subject for this segment, well, actually, we just heard it a couple of times right there in that piece by Stevie Ray Vaughan. He had a nice, well, pause right there. And we've been pushing around this piece for, I don't know, since... It seems like last year, in praise of the one-second pause, which Hengler worked up, and, uh, well, we're going to resuscitate it, because it seems like it's already been buried. And when we, we went to Hengler and said, hey, I think we should do that one-second pause, now he went, what? You're serious. We're not going to really do it, are we? And we really are. And, uh, well, before we do, I just wanted to talk a little bit about why pauses matter. In literature, and I don't know if you remember your class way back, if you ever took a poetry class or a writing class, but the Caesura is one of the most important literary devices there is in poetry. And, well, what it means, well, here's the actual definition from the Poetry Archive. A Caesura is a strong pause within a line and is often found alongside an enjambment. If all the pauses in the sense of the poem were to occur at the line breaks, this could become dull. Moving the pauses so they occur within the line creates musical interest. A Caesura may be marked like this, and then you'll see two straight lines next to each other. So when you're reading a poem and you see that, that means shut up, basically. Shut up. Two lines. John Mole's Coming Home has a first stanza that sets off in a very steady rhythm with the first four sentences the same length as the line and the same length as each other. The fifth sentence is only half a line long, and the pause following that full stop creates a really dramatic cesura. So again, where and how to use pauses. And by the way, musicians, great ones, especially as they get older. Listen to B.B. King play when he was young. Listen to him play when he was older. And I say the same for my dear and most beloved guitarist and my personal favorite, Stevie Ray Vaughan. Listen to him play when he was young, up and down the fret like a madman. Older, sometimes he'd just shut up. Hardest thing to do sometimes. By the way, all over the Bible, you'll see... The same thing, called something different. And I'm holding in my hand Psalm 3. Save me, O my God. That's one of the Psalms of David when he fled from Absalom with his son. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation from him in God. Sesur. I'm supposed to shut up now. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. Sesora. So on and so forth. So now on to Hengler's in praise of the one-second pause. And, well, we're going to be talking to someone, or Greg did, named Marty Nemko, who holds a Ph.D. in education from the University of California, Berkeley. He is in his 26th year as a host of a national public radio, San Francisco radio show. And Marty recently wrote a piece for Psychology Today entitled, In Praise of the One Second Pause. He began his piece asking these questions. 
How do you feel when someone interrupts you? Very few people like it. Well, this question is harder. How do you feel when someone starts to talk the nanosecond you finish saying something? Chances are you don't like that either. After all, that suggests that the person was more interested in saying something than in digesting what you said. Or maybe the person stopped paying attention and was just waiting for you to finish. Now, in contrast, imagine that you finished saying something and the person took a full second to think. Maybe saying, hmm, now how are you feeling? You're probably feeling the person thought your statement was worth pondering and more foundational that you were taken seriously, which we all want. Well, we had Our American Stories' Greg Hengler ask Marty, what would we say to someone who just likes to talk and never takes that breath? Or how would we respond to somebody who consistently interrupts us? Here's Marty's answer. It's very difficult to change people, but I am a big believer in giving tactfully dispensed unwanted advice. So if somebody really is interrupting me all the time, I would, in a very tactful and simple way, say, I really would like to finish. And if you watch CNN or you watch any kind of TV or radio show, you'll see that the experienced guests who are on panels, if there is one of their um, panelists is interrupting all the time, they'll say something like, I allowed you to finish, please allow me, and do that in that very calm way. You pay a price no matter what. You pay a price if you ignore it, but you pay a bigger price if you're constantly ignored. And again, it depends on the situation. If you're getting interviewed for a job, I'm not sure you're going to want to interrupt the interviewer and say, to tell the interrupter, would you please stop interrupting me? But in more common situations where the risk-reward ratio is better, it may be worth offering a bit of gentle feedback. We know a man who adheres to a four-sentence rule. This involves speaking approximately four sentences and then waiting to see if the listener wants to hear more. He does this because we often say more than our listener wants to hear. Is this rule basically a different take compared to your one-second pause suggestion? It's a very different rule, and I find that uh, too rigid. That's the rule of how long you should talk. I'm much more in favor of what I call the traffic light rule. During the first 30 seconds of an utterance, your light is green. The person is paying attention, uh, not overwhelmed with content. During the second 30 seconds of an utterance, your light is yellow. There's an increased chance that the person is wishing you would stop or indeed has something that he or she wants to say. At the 60-second mark, you occasionally uh, want to run a red light, which is, uh, but usually you want to stop. So I think that gives a little more flexibility than four sentences because sometimes things take less than four sentences and sometimes more. Boy, these are really good rules to live by, actually. Never really thought about that before. I think I've got like a nine-minute rule. i got to really work on this. Man. Here's Marty on a pet peeve he has involving conversation. Narcissism. Normally in a conversation, it is like a ping-pong game. You want to spend roughly half the time with the ball in your court. Roughly, it's more like 40 to 60% in a conversation. And very many people violate the rule in either direction. They're either narcissistic and they will talk about 80 or 90% of the time and never ask a question about you. Or if they do, it's obligatory, and then they're, but they're really not paying attention. They're only half listening. Or on the other hand, of course, there are people who have difficulty speaking up and who talk 20, 10 to 20% of the time. So a nice rule of thumb is to go for roughly 40 to 60% of the time using the traffic light rule and using the one second pause. But I would be full of BS if I said that was very easy to change. It is very difficult to change a natural habit of interrupting, talking at too great length, 
and not pausing. Well, so far we have chose to cut out Greg's question to Marty. But for this one, we will be including Greg's question because it's a personal one. But wait for it. So is Marty's answer. I don't necessarily consider myself a narcissist, but I I know that I struggle with returning the favor when somebody asks me a question. You know, how was your day? What did you do this weekend? A lot of times I'll give them an answer and then I won't say, well, how was yours? And then I walk away and I can, it's usually four or five minutes later, I'm like, oh man, I did it again. I didn't ask them. I just must come off as just selfish. Well, that's what the narcissist thing is about. It becomes (laughs) not high enough priority that while you count, so does your conversation partner. Ouch. That stung. Greg asked for some clarity. So I fall into the narcissist's carrier. Well, it's too strong. I mean, you're way ahead of the game because you're concerned about it. You're aware about it. You're in that interim transition period from when you are unaware and just oblivious and continuing to blather on and a full conversation partner. So I would bet that you will do fine. You're just in that transition period. You're not a narcissist. There you go, folks. None of us here have perfected the art of dialogue and thought this would be a piece of advice we could all put in our back pocket and actually use in praise of the one-second pause. And don't forget, 30 seconds, green light, 45 seconds, yellow light. You go past a minute and don't let the other guy talk. You got a problem. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And our next story comes from Michael Lella, who shared his dad's incredible story at fee.org, that's F-E-E dot org, the terrific website of the Foundation for Economic Education, and he graciously recorded it for us. If you were 17 and growing up in Milan, Italy in 1943, more than likely you would have been forced indoctrinated and brainwashed into fascism. The dictator of Italy responsible for it, Benito Mussolini, had been in power since 1922. My dad was born in 1926. The voice and image of Il Duce, as Italians were obliged to call Mussolini, were ubiquitous in Italy at the time. Mussolini would ultimately drag the country into the Second World War on the side of Germany's Adolf Hitler. My father is now 92 and lives an hour north of Milan. His name is Pino Lella. If you had to pick a time to be a teenager in Milan, 1943 would have been the worst of choices. In June, as my dad was nearing his 17th birthday, the British began an intensive six-month bombing campaign. It left a third of the city's population homeless, about 400,000 people. My father and his younger brother, my uncle Mimo, narrowly escaped death one night following the bombing of a movie theater. They were there to see you were never lovelier with Fred Astaire and Rita Hayworth, and they witnessed many casualties. My grandfather, Michele, in an effort to keep his boys from becoming victims of the continued bombing, sent my father and uncle to a Catholic boys' school. They were familiar with this school because it was there that they had learned to ski and loved the mountains as children. 
The school was located high in the Alps, above Lake Como, not far from the Swiss border. It was called Casa Alpina, and it was run by a very courageous priest by the name of Father Luigi Ray. Being the oldest of the boys, my dad was singled out by Father Ray and trained to become an Alpine guide. At first, my father knew nothing of the Nazi brutality against Jews and others. In fact, he had learned to respect the Nazi high command, many of whom were customers of his family's leather goods store in Milan. They had occupied Milan as brothers in arms to defend Milan from the British bombing. But my dad became brutally aware of the Nazi crimes in September of 1943 when word came of 52 prominent Jews being rounded up by the Nazis and executed in the village of Mena on Lago Maggiore. Their bodies were thrown into the lake for the local citizens to see. It was then that many Italians rebelled and began hiding and protecting their Jewish Italian friends. They formed an underground railroad, a network of escape routes, similar to the one that was developed to save American slaves before and during America's Civil War. One of the network routes led through to Casalpina. This was where their Lello brothers were sent to wait out the bombing of Milan. For nine harrowing months while at Casalpina, from the fall of 1943 through June of 1944, the month of his 18th birthday, my father guided many Jewish refugees across the Alps into neutral Switzerland to escape Italy. He risked his life evading Nazi patrols, surviving avalanches and grenade attacks. He was robbed by bandits disguising themselves as anti-fascist partisans. He often carried the weak and the elderly on his back in the dead of winter over the top of the Alps, some of the world's most rugged mountain terrain. Some had embarked on this journey with my father in such a way that they wore street shoes, not exactly hiking gear for the Alps in below zero temperatures. At the time, my dad simply did what he was told to do and thought little of it. Father Ray instructed him to take people to safety, and so he did it. He knew it was dangerous, of course, but even to this day, he doesn't think of what he did as heroic. He had faith in doing the right thing, and such a high regard for Father Ray that he would have done anything for him. The missions gave him an identity, a meaningful purpose, and an opportunity to lead. And like many 17-year-olds with reckless abandon, he thrived on the excitement and adventure of it all, at least while it lasted. In June of 1944, my father turned 18, the age at which young Italians were drafted by the state into the military. He had two choices. He could join Mussolini's fascist army and quite likely end up on the Russian front. His other option was to conscript with the German army. His aunt and uncle had connections that might land him a secure and hopefully a safer job in the organization Todd. This was the armament and the construction division of the Third Reich. For his safety, but against his wishes, Pino's father and mother talked him into enlisting in the German army. Dad reluctantly donned the military uniform with a Nazi swastika. What happened next was almost unbelievable. Through a series of extraordinary circumstances, including his wounding during an Allied bombing raid, my father was ordered back to Milan to convalesce for two weeks. 
Then, with a little help from family and his ability to speak French and drive a car, he landed a position as the personal driver and confidant for one of Hitler's most mysterious officers in the German high command. He was a man so powerful in Italy that he responded directly, personally, and only to Adolf Hitler. His name was General Hans Lairs, the plenipotentiary of the Italian sector for organization taught. To Pino's aunt and uncle, his assignment as a driver for such a powerful figure was a serendipitous opportunity of a lifetime. It could help change the direction of the war. They understood the importance of it because they were already working in secret for the Allies and the Italian resistance. The kind of information their nephew would now have access to could be critical for the fight against the Germans. My father, still a teenager, as a new and personal driver for this top Nazi commander, became a spy known to the Allies as the Observer. For the last year of the war, while driving General Lairs around northern Italy, my dad learned the locations of tank traps, landmines, ammunition tunnels, and every fortification between Florence and Milan. He observed the Germans' main defensive positions. He secretly documented troop movements. He took notes and photos. And he fed mounds of that crucial information to the Allies by using Uncle Albert's shortwave OSS radio. More than once, my father was nearly caught, which would likely have led to his torture and execution. But he kept the trust of an unwitting General Lairs. My dad personally witnessed the Nazi persecution of Jews, as well as the working to death of slaves from many faiths and nationalities in work camps, hoping and dreaming that one day he could testify against those responsible. At midnight on April 24, 1945, upon orders from the resistance, my father single-handedly arrested General Hans Lairs and delivered him to the American command, which was led by 5th U.S. Army Major Frank Nabel. For the next five days, he became Major Nabel's personal guide and translator, at last discarding his uniform and the Nazi swastika. On April 28th, Pino and Major Nabel witness a hideous moment in Italian history the public desecration of Mussolini's body in Piazzale Loreto amid the hysteria and fanaticism of the frenzied Italian mobs. Hitler killed himself in Berlin two days later. With the deaths of the two fascist dictators, my father thought he was finished with the war. But in fact, the war wasn't quite finished with him. In early May, the famous Brenner Pass through the Alps was the most dangerous corner of Europe. The German army was retreating from Italy through the pass into Austria. Thousands of Nazi troops who refused to surrender were on the run, being chased down and cut off by Italian resistance fighters and the U.S. Army. In the midst of this, my father was asked if he would do America a favor and accept the final mission. The Americans asked my dad to be a guide one last time, leading one final escape from Italy. His mission was to drive an important, high-ranking Nazi from American custody to the Austrian border, where he could safely be interrogated 
for the intelligence he possessed about Hitler's Reich. Who was this top general my dad was enlisted to escort to safety? None other than the very man he had driven for, the very man he had arrested and turned over to the Allies just weeks before, General Hans Lehrs. Distraught and tormented over the events of the last week of the war, my father accepted that final mission. You can only imagine the conversation in the car between my dad and General Lairs. By the evening of that same day, May 3rd, 1945, my dad delivered General Lairs to the Americans awaiting for him on the Austrian border. That final escort ended my father's involvement in World War II, but like many of that greatest generation, the experience and the weeks preceding the war's end continued to haunt him for the rest of his life. And to hear the rest of Pino Lella's remarkable story, pick up Mark Sullivan's best-selling book about him, Beneath a Scarlet Sky. And thanks to the son, Michael, again, who shared his dad's incredible story at feed.org. Great job, as always, on this, Alex and Joey. Michael's story, his dad's story, a great World War II story here on Our American Stories. <laughs> 